0: You're listening to The Preaching Podcast of Victory Baptist Church in Roanoke Rapids, North Carolina, led by Pastor Jeremy Kobernack. It is our desire that you will be helped by this Bible message. We've started this series in Revelation. Revelation 1 really is kind of an explanation of the book. Uh, We find in Revelation 1 that John is on the Isle of Patmos And uh, God shows up, Jesus Christ shows up to John. And we see that description in Revelation chapter 1 of what John saw. And keep in mind, John was there at the cross. He saw Jesus as the crucified Savior. He saw Jesus after the crucifixion. He saw him after the resurrection. And he saw him in his ascension. But John saw something in Revelation chapter 1 that he had not seen before. He saw Jesus Christ in his power and in his glory. The Bible says when he saw him, he he went up and he gave him high five, right? Is that what he did? He went up to Jesus and he told him about all the things that uh, Jesus needed to do for him. Oh, no. John, the Bible says he fell at his feet and he fell on his face as though he were dead. That is what happens when we get a glimpse of Jesus. When we get a glimpse of Jesus for who he is, we also recognize ourselves for who we are. Remember in Isaiah 6, in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah said, I saw the Lord. And he was high and lifted up and he was sitting on a throne. And it was at that time that Isaiah said, woe is me, for I am undone, for I am unclean. I'm a man of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Revelation 1, John got a glimpse of Jesus, and we see in Revelation 1 that the book of Revelation is a revealing. It is an unveiling. It would be tonight as if, uh, if we had a, a new uh, piano. We don't, we don't have a new piano. We don't need a new piano. We've got a great one. But if, if, if you came into the auditorium tonight, and there was this big piece of furniture that was covered uh, with a sheet... And we said, all right, folks, at 8 o'clock, we're going to pull back the curtain. We're going to unveil what this is. And you didn't know what it was. And so we would pull it back. And you'd see, oh, wow, that's what it is. Well, before we pulled back the curtain, you wouldn't know. You'd be guessing, right? But once it was unveiled or once it was revealed, then you'd know. And that's what the book of Revelation is. It is an unveiling. God gives us, God shows us what is to come. And I'm so thankful for the book of Revelation. Were it not for the book of Revelation, there would be so many prophecies in the Old Testament that we wouldn't understand. We wouldn't be able to figure out, but it all fits together like a puzzle. It all fits together and and it helps us to understand what is coming next. Then we get to Revelation chapter two and Revelation chapter three. We see the seven individual churches. And I didn't say this when we were going through, but I feel like I need to say it. There will be people that will say that those seven churches, they represent times throughout the history of the church. And I will say this, I think there is some validity to that. I think that is definitely a good application Uh, For instance, here's what, what some Bible scholars believe. They believe that those seven churches, beginning with the church at Ephesus, they believe the church at Ephesus represents about the first hundred years of the church age from the time of the book of Acts all the way till about 100 A.D. Then the church of Smyrna, Bible scholars will say that that could represent the time between 100 A.D. and 314 A.D., when Many Christians were martyred and many Christians were persecuted during that time. Then the church at Pergamos could represent the uh, time from 314 A.D. to 500 A.D. That was the time when Constantine came to power. That was when uh, Christianity and the government, they kind of meshed and they kind of tried to make it, you know, something that was acceptable. And we often refer to that as a time of compromise And that is certainly what happened. And religion became big business and it became actually kind of the thing to do. Well, I wanna remind you that we're not looking to see what the world says is okay to figure out how we do church. We're looking to see what God says. We wanna know what the Bible says. And if if the world is applauding, okay, great, but we're not looking for the applause of the world. We're looking for the approval of Almighty God. And so that happened also to the church at Pergamus. They, they compromised. Then the church at Thyatira represents a time perhaps from 500 AD to 1500 AD. And that's the, meant much of the dark ages, the middle ages. And the Bible says about the church at Thyatira that many uh, would be killed and many would be put to death. We do know in history that during that time, 50% of Europe was wiped out by the bubonic plague. We do know that was a time of death. It was a time of persecution. Uh, Historians tell us that nearly 50 million people were killed from that plague going through Asia, Europe, and Africa. That's a lot of people, 50 million people. World War II, there were about 85 million people killed. So to think about a plague that could wipe out 50 million people. Then the church at Sardis represents perhaps a time from 1517 A.D. to about 1800 A.D. That would have been the time of the Reformation. And by the way, there were a lot of good things that happened during the Reformation. But I want to remind us tonight that we don't trace our roots back to the Reformation because the Reformation was a group of people that came out of the Catholic Church Baptists did not come out of the Catholic church. Baptists have been around since the time of Christ, since the early church. And you say, well, do you think you're better than everybody because you're a Baptist? No, that's not it at all. But what we do is we hold to the truths of the Scripture and we believe that we can trace a line all the way back to the time of Christ. If you've ever read uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs or if you've ever read The Trail of Blood in some of those books, I'm just saying that, that Christian people have been persecuted since the time of Christ and in many cases it was because of two things. Number one, because we believe in salvation by grace. And number two, we believe in baptism by immersion. We don't don't baptize babies around here. If you've been around for any length of time, you've seen that we baptize those who have been saved, those who have made a profession of faith in Christ, and we baptize not with sprinkling. We baptize by immersion. Uh, Many of our ancestors were uh, referred to as Anabaptists, and that was not a complimentary term. That was a term that they used to, uh, to, to, to mock and to ridicule and to persecute because there were people that said, we're not doing it the way that the Catholic church is doing it. We're not doing it the way the state church is doing it. We're doing it the way that B- the Bible teaches. And the Bible teaches that every person that ever got saved, they got baptized and they went down into the water. They were uh, submerged in the water. And so uh, that's why we say that baptism is a picture of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so that church at Sardis, uh, perhaps during the time of the Reformation, a church that had a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. And then the church at Philadelphia, that would be from about 1800 to 1900 perhaps. And again, the Bible does not say this church represents this time, but I think it's definitely, I think there's, there's some, some practicality. I think there's some, uh, some, some applications that certainly could be made to these eras in history. The church at Philadelphia the, from 1800 to 1900 AD would represent the missions church. Remember what it said about the church at Philadelphia? They had set before them an open door. You know what was happening in the 1800s and the early 1900s? There were missionaries that were being sent all over the world. I jotted down just a few, and there's a whole lot more than this, but missionaries like Adoniram Judson would have been in that time frame, missionaries like William Carey. Uh, missionaries like David Livingston and Hudson Taylor and Jonathan Goforth and Robert Moffat and Mary Slessor. these were missionaries that God used mightily during that time frame. So those are the first six churches. Anybody remember what the seventh church was that we studied? Church at Laodicea. Well, guess where that leaves us in that category. Can I say, I think there's a lot of validity to that. I think we right now in the United States of America, especially, there's churches all over the world. But I think in the United States of America, I think we've become a lot like that Laodicean church. We're just lukewarm. We just want to be comfortable. I was talking to my brother this week and he uh, has been this week. He's been on a missions trip in Egypt. Uh, I just got a message from him a little bit ago and they're, they're on the plane, they're flying back. But can I tell you something? Egypt is not a safe place to be for a Christian. Egypt is not a, a safe place to be for people that would preach the gospel and people that would share their faith in Jesus Christ. There was this past week, and I, I don't know how many have, have seen the news about it, but there was a man who gave his life in the Middle East this week who was trying to reach people with the gospel, uh, who was killed for his faith. And I want to tell you, while we're sitting over here in the United States of America on our padded pews and in our air-conditioned buildings with our one-hour services and our online and our radio and our have-it-your-way religion, there are people in this world that are giving their lives for the cause of Christ. There are people that will risk everything and give up everything just to serve God and just to be in a church service. And I want to tell you we are living, I believe in the layout to see an age, but that doesn't mean you and I have to be that way. May God help us to have some fire. May God help us to have a passion and to have a a zeal for God even in this age. I believe that we can still be overcomers. I believe we can still be victorious even in this day. And by the way, if we are living in that church age of the Laodicean church, guess what that means? It means this is the last time before Jesus comes back. Because Revelation 2 and 3, you see the churches, all seven churches, and, and those were actual physical churches in Asia Minor. But then you get to Revelation chapter 4, and you see the trumpet, and the rapture, and the church is caught up, and the judgment seat of Christ. And I want to tell you, I just believe that Jesus is coming, and I believe he's coming soon, and I hope and I pray that we have our eyes open to realize that we are so close to the return of of the Lord, so we saw that. Next, as we get into chapter four, and I know that's just a little bit of review and probably a little more teaching uh, tonight as we get into chapter five. But as we get into chapter four, we now start to see some of the uh, the end times. We start to see some events that have not happened yet, but the Bible tells us they will happen. Um, if you have a pen and paper. I wanna give you a few things to jot down. And if you don't have a pen and paper, don't stress it. But if you do, I think it'll help you and we'll look at these things uh, in the next few weeks. There are some events that will take place that have not happened yet, but there are some events that'll take place that I think it's good for us to know how these events unfold and in which order they will take place. Let me give you a few. For the saved people, for Christian people, You know what we're looking forward to? We're looking forward to the rapture, amen? We're looking forward to the trumpet sound. Now, for somebody that's not saved, that's not a good day. That's not a good event because the Bible says that after the rapture on earth, there will begin seven years of tribulation. We're going to get into that in Revelation uh, chapter six as the the seals are opened and the vials are poured out and the trumpet judgments are sounded. And we're gonna see God's wrath poured out on this earth. But for the Christian, we're looking forward to the rapture. After the rapture takes place in heaven, there will be the judgment seat of Christ. And we talked about that in the last few weeks. That's where we'll receive crowns uh, for our service for Christ. Let me give you a few crowns to jot down. And uh, I don't know that we'll get into all of this um, soon, but we'll get into this uh, in the next few weeks, I'm sure at some point, but there is an incorruptible crown. The Bible talks about an incorruptible crown. That's compared to a corruptible crown. A corruptible is something that's temporal, but an incorruptible crown is something that is eternal. There is a crown of life that is promised. A crown of life is promised for those who endure temptation and especially for those who are martyred for the cause of Christ. There is a crown of of life. There's a crown of glory that is promised to those who are pastors and those who are teachers and those who are shepherds of God's people. There's a crown of rejoicing. You say, well, who's the crown of rejoicing for? It's for soul winners, it's for people that share the gospel with other people. There's a crown for every soul winner, for every person that wins people to Christ. And then there's a crown of righteousness. The crown of righteousness is for those who love and those who anticipate Jesus' return. That's pretty sobering because, you know, some days I think we get so wrapped up in our schedule that we don't stop to think that Jesus could come back today. But, you know, that ought to be something you think about every day. Every day you ought to think this could be the day that Jesus would come back. I promise if you'd think that way, and if I'd think that way, we'd live a lot differently, wouldn't we? If we would live with the return of Christ in mind every day. But those are some crowns, and we'll talk about those uh, in the weeks ahead. But there is, for the Christian, there's the rapture. There's the judgment seat of Christ. After the judgment seat of Christ in heaven, the next event that we will uh, experience is the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. Boy, that's going to be amazing! Can you imagine what this earth is going to be like for a thousand years? There will be no, um, there will be no president. There will be no governor. Um, there will be uh, no one elected. There will be no one appointed except those appointed by Jesus Himself, and He will be the King, and He will sit on a throne. In Jerusalem and he will rule this world for a thousand years. And The Bible says that we as Christians, we will come and we will rule and reign with him. You say, oh, good. I'm going to get some payback. Well, you won't do that because you'll be in your glorified body. So uh, there won't be any revenge, I'm sure. Uh, although right now, some of you are thinking, I'd like to get back at some people. But there'll be the millennial reign of Christ for a thousand years on this earth. And then after the millennial reign for the Christian, there will be the new Jerusalem. There'll be the new heaven. There'll be the new earth where we will live with Jesus Christ forever and ever and ever. Isn't that a wonderful thought? Isn't that a glorious, glorious picture to get in your mind? That's for the saved person. But I want to remind you, for the unsaved person, it's a much different story. For the unsaved person, it gets worse and worse and worse. For the Christian, it gets better and better and better. But here's what happens for the unsaved person. The rapture takes place, and those that are unsaved are left behind. The Bible says they will go through the tribulation. At the close of the tribulation, the unsaved folks will go through the Battle of Armageddon. Now, I just told you about World War II. I told you about 85 million people being killed in World War II. World War II will seem like a picnic compared to the Battle of Armageddon. The unsaved will go through the Battle of Armageddon. Then they will experience the resurrection of the dead where they will be resurrected But not to be in heaven, not to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, but to stand before a great white throne judgment. You say, what happens at that judgment? Well, at that judgment, all the books are opened. And the book is open, the Bible says, which is the book of life. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Can I tell you, for the unsaved person, they go from the tribulation. They go to the battle of Armageddon. They then have the resurrection of the unsaved to stand before the great white throne, where from there they will be cast into a lake of fire. Forever and ever and ever. Now, friend, I want to tell you, that ought to shake you. And that ought to shake me with a seriousness and a responsibility that we have to get the gospel to people. Now, you can't make the decision for somebody, but you can at least share the gospel. You can't twist somebody's arm. You can't force somebody to be saved, but you can witness to somebody. You can pray for somebody. You can have compassion and you can get burdened for somebody that does not know Christ. So those are some events that we're gonna talk about as we get through the book of Revelation. Those are events of things to come. Let's look at Revelation chapter five for just a few minutes and I won't keep you long tonight. It's getting warm in here. Is everybody okay? Anybody else warm? Am I the only one? we got some folks that are warm. Brother, um, brother Wade, do you know how to do, you not do that thermostat? You might not be able to see that. Does anybody know how to do that? Miss Odell? All right, Miss Odell does it all. <laughs> she does. She knows how to do it all. So, uh, brother, um, brother Wade, when she gets there, tell her we want it to be above 32. <laughs> Miss Odell, if you maybe could turn that air on, maybe down to about, 71. You say, oh, 71's not bad. Well, it's probably about 74 in here right now. So, what does it say right now, Miss Odell? Where are we at? Well, that's the, that's the setting, but what's the actual temperature? 73. Okay, so I was off one. I'm going to say, if it, this is 67, we all need to go to the ER. All right, chapter five. Are you ready for this? Verse number one. And I saw in the right hand of him that sat. On, Joanna, don't make me laugh. Joanna's thinking, he is losing it. I've been telling him he's losing it. Now I know he's losing it. And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within, and on the backside, it was sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof. Now, John, he he sees this taking place in heaven. He sees there's someone that is uh, sitting on the throne and he sees that the person on the throne. We know who that is. That is God who is on the throne and he's got in his hand a book. It's a scroll. And that scroll is sealed with seven seals. And here is what that that scroll is. It is a title deed to the earth. And that title deed to the earth, the question is asked, who is worthy to open the book? Now, I I understand there's a lot of songs we sing that are not 100% doctrinal and there's some that have little things and all that. But there is a song we sing that says that, uh, that they uh, searched through heaven and they couldn't find, th- there, there was one willing to be the supreme sacrifice and all that. But, but this is not the question, who is willing? The question here is, who is worthy? And notice what it says when the question is asked, who is worthy? And then verse 3, it says, and No man in heaven. Now, who is in heaven at this time? Because the rapture has already taken place. There's a lot of saints. There's a whole lot of Christians in heaven. All the way back to Moses and David and Daniel and Joshua and Joseph and Peter and James and John and the apostle Paul. They're all in heaven. But the angel said none of them were worthy to open that scroll. No man in heaven, nor in the earth. Well, who was in the earth? Well, this time is during the tribulation. We're talking about the world rulers. We're talking about the billionaires. We're talking about the world powers and the dictators. None of those were worthy. They couldn't open the book. As a matter of fact, it says they were not even worthy to look at it. That's how important this scroll is. No man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. Verse four, John says, and I wept much. Now I understand that heaven is a place where all tears will be wiped away. But this had to be an unusual occurrence in heaven. When John says, there was nobody worthy. There was nobody that could open the scroll. There was nobody that could claim ownership of this earth. There was nobody that could right the wrongs. There was nobody that could fix the hurts. There was nobody that could correct the problems. There was nobody that had any authority to do anything about planet earth. And he says, I wept much because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. I love this. Verse five. And one of the elders saith unto me, read the next two words with me. Verse five. Ready? Weep not. Aren't you glad for the, the times in the Bible where Jesus says, weep not. Don't be sad, don't be discouraged, don't be sorrowful. You don't need to weep, weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And John says, I beheld. And lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, And in the midst of the elders stood a what? A lamb. Now, verse five calls him a lion. But did you know that the title lamb is given to Jesus more in the book of Revelation than any other book? As a matter of fact, in the book of Revelation, Jesus is referred to 28 times as a lamb and only a few times as a lion. You say, well, how come? Because, verse number six says, he stood as a lamb as it had been, what? Slain. That's the key. That's what is going to make him able to open the book. Because he is worthy. Because he shed his blood. Because he paid the price. Because he redeemed us. He paid for us. With his own blood. A lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent forth into all the earth. And he came, I love this, and he took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. I want you to notice in these few verses one thing I want you to see in verse six. I want you to see where was the lamb. John said, There was nobody, no man in heaven. There was no man in earth. There was no man under the earth. And John was weeping. John was, he was distraught. He said, there's nobody that can fix it. Nobody that can help. But then an elder said, oh, John, don't weep. We've got an answer. And the answer is the lion of the tribe of Judah. The answer is the root out of uh, David. The the answer is the lamb that has been slain. And notice where he was, verse 6. It says he was in the midst of the elders. Did you know there's a lot of times where we overlook Jesus? I think there's a lot of church services I think there's a lot of spiritual things. I think there's a lot of good things that we do, and we don't realize that Jesus is right in the middle of it all, and we overlook him. We overlook him when we're in trouble, don't we? Where's Jesus? Oh no, I need Jesus. Well, guess what? He's in the middle. He's right in the midst of what you're going through. He's right in the middle of your storm. He's walking with you through the valley of the shadow of death. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. And John said he was there all along. He was in the midst of the elders. A lamb as it had been slain in the midst of the throne. I want you to also notice with me, if you would, in verse number 5 that he is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Now that's what the children of Israel, that's what they were looking for all along. They were looking for a king that would stand up to the Roman government. They were looking for a king that would lead them into freedom. They were looking for a king that would be bold as a lion, but that's not how Jesus came. He came as a lamb. As a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus came as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. And so now he is portrayed as a lion of the tribe of Judah. He is also the root of David. Now, the root of David is interesting because the root means that he is the one that brought David into existence. Remember, the Jews couldn't figure that out. They said, how are you the son of David? But yet David called you Lord. I mean, how does that work? But Jesus Christ came to sit on the throne of David. David was given the promise that from his seed there would come a king. But Jesus didn't come from David. David came through Jesus and David came from God. And David was given that throne that Jesus would someday sit upon. So we see in this passage, let me give you a few thoughts. Number one, actually, I'll give you one thought. We see the discovery of our worthlessness. Now, John is one of the greatest of all the apostles. I think we would all say that. John is the one who gave us the gospel of John. John is the disciple that leaned upon the breast of Jesus at that last supper. He was the disciple that Jesus loved. He gave us the gospel of John. He gave us the first and second and third John. He gave us the book of Revelation. But John is in heaven and he says, there ain't nobody worthy. I'm not worthy. Nobody else up here is worthy. Nobody down on earth is worthy. None of us are worthy to take that scroll and to take possession of this earth. We see the discovery of our worthlessness. The Bible says in Romans 3, verse number 10, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. The Bible tells us that all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. The Bible tells us that in our flesh there is no good thing. The Bible makes it very clear that without Jesus, we can do nothing. We're all worthless without Jesus. But aren't you glad that we're not without Jesus? Aren't you glad that he is with us? And aren't you glad that through Christ, we can do all things? And with Christ, all things are possible. Our confidence must not be in ourselves, but our confidence must be in our Savior. Anything good that happens in our lives is not because of us, but anything good that happens in our lives is all because of him. But John shows us in Revelation 5, he shows us our worthlessness. Secondly, we'll get into this next week, but we see not only the discovery of our worthlessness, but we see the one who is deserving of our worship. I'll say this about the one who is worthy of our worship. Jesus is worthy. And we say that and we sing that. Uh, There was a chorus we used to sing when I was uh, in high school. uh, Thou art worthy. Just taken from Revelation 4. Thou art worthy. Thou art worthy. Thou art worthy, O Lord. And we'd sing that. and, And he is worthy. But let's put that where we live right now. You know what that means? That means that Jesus is worth something. But I wonder, what is he worth to you? You know what he was worth to Judas? 30 pieces of silver. The price of a slave. Can you imagine that? That to Judas Iscariot, who walked with Jesus for three and a half years, all Jesus was worth was 30 measly pieces of silver. Then there was Mary. Mary took that spike nerd and poured it out at Jesus' feet, and that spike nerd was worth a year's salary. Mary was not a disciple. She didn't walk with Jesus, and, and she didn't see all that Judas saw, but yet to Mary, Judas, or to Jesus was worth a whole lot more than 30 pieces of silver. But I wonder what is Jesus worth to you? Is he worth your time? Is he worth your love? I'll tell you what he's worth to you. He's worth your Wednesday night. You came out on Wednesday night to show Jesus you're worth my time on a Wednesday night to come to church to worship you. Is he worth your money? Is he worth your devotion? Is he worth any sacrifice that you and I could do? We'll see next week that he's worthy of so much more than we could ever give. But I want to say tonight that Jesus Christ is worthy. You make a purchase and you say, I wonder if I got my money's worth. You ever bought something and say, I think I got ripped off. I think I paid too much for that. I think that person, I think they got me. Nobody will ever feel that way with anything they give to Jesus. You'll never feel like you got the short end of the deal. You'll never say, you know, I spent 20 years of my life serving Jesus and for what? No, you'll spend 20 years of your life serving Jesus and say, I hope I got another 20. You'll spend 40 or 50 years of your life uh, serving God and you'll say, I wish I had another 40 or 50 years to serve God. It's worth it. Jesus Christ is worth everything that you and I have. Thank you for listening to the preaching podcast of Victory Baptist Church in Roanoke Rapids, North Carolina, led by Pastor Jeremy Coburnett. For more information about our ministry, please visit our website at vbcrr.org. May God bless you as you serve Him this week.